Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're finishing our uh, kind of short series of messages through the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48 this morning. Um, As we go from here, we're going to be looking at uh, some psalms this summer, but also kind of doing a deep dive uh, into the life of King Saul. Uh, So we'll kind of spend the summer with Saul a little bit. Uh, But we also have some great uh, guest speakers coming in throughout the summer, uh, including uh, Pastor Paul McFarland from Ireland is going to be in in August and and preaching a couple of weekends there. So we have a great summer planned uh, after this uh, series to the Sermon on the Mount. But today we'll be in Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. Let me pray one more time, then we'll dive in. Father God, we love you and we thank you for uh, just the opportunity to do what uh, your people have always done, which is come together hear from you, from your word, and then respond to your word and worship. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit today to, to really hear from you in your word. It, it's your spirit that convicts of sin. It's your spirit that uh, illuminates us and opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. It's your spirit uh, that blesses us with faith. And so, Lord, we need your spirit today. We need him to convict us to encourage us, to to give us eyes to truly see. This is a challenging passage. And Lord, uh, we need to know uh, how this passage is truly hitting us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't walk away from today unchanged. I pray that uh, our lives would be changed as a result of your word today. So Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, what would Jesus give? When, when I was a, a college student, there was all this gear that started showing up, asking the question, what would Jesus do, WWJD? And, and I think that's a great question to ask. I, I appreciate that gear, and, and I appreciate people trying to ask that question. And specifically today in, in our passage, as we ask this question, it, it's really in the context of how people treat us and then how we're supposed to respond to it. This is what Jesus is getting at today. And typically, or, or to put some biblical theological language on it, naturally, humans respond to other humans in particular ways, right? However, Jesus taught his disciples to respond counterculturally, to respond differently than the way we're supposed to, or in the way that we naturally respond to people. Take a moment here and just. Think about the way Jesus responded to people. I'm not going to make you close your eyes, but, but reflect a little bit on all those stories that you know about Jesus. How did Jesus respond to people? Like, like people took from Jesus, right? Like many of his relationships, they cost him something. So thinking of those stories, when, when someone gave Jesus something bad, Did he respond by, in turn, giving them something bad? Like, did Jesus play this this tit-for-tat game with people? And further, what what did he give to those who were hard to love? Jesus had people in his life that were hard to love. What what did he give them? What did he give to those people who took from him? I I want you to think now about your own life. Who, Who is taking from you right now? We always have people in our lives that that are hard to love and they take from us in some, in some way. You might have multiple people taking from you. My mother-in-law has a great saying that some people are givers and some people are takers, right? 
Like we always have people in our lives that are, that are, are taking, that it, that it costs us something. And I'm sure you have those relationships. What, what is it costing you today to have some of those relationships? Or, and further, what are you giving in return? And our question today is, what would Jesus give them? This final section of Matthew 5 is important because my mother-in-law's wisdom is true. There are always givers and there's always takers. Some people are either givers or takers, and you're always going to have takers in your life. We're always going to have people that are hard to love because it costs us something to love them. Uh, And we need to know uh, what to give to takers. And, And maybe sadly for some of you, Jesus is not going to let you give them what you want to give them. Amen? Okay, Jesus is going to teach us to respond in a different way. Now, if, if you're new with us and, and new to this series, let me just give context of where we are. Where we are is we've been in this five-week study of the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 5. And we've said that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon by the greatest preacher. And no matter how you want to you know, measure that, that statement is certainly true. Jesus was the greatest preacher, okay? And, and here's a, you know, what is true of great preaching is, is the man matches the message, okay? So if someone, if their integrity doesn't match the message, then, then it's hollow, right? And, and no preacher has ever had perfect integrity except for Jesus. So Jesus' integrity, his character, who he was, perfectly matched what he was saying. But, but also great sermons uh, really, I think, can be evaluated in a few different ways. Number one, is it faithful and true to the Word of God? And again, Jesus perfectly interpreted the Old Testament in this sermon. He repeatedly goes back to the, the Old Testament and he interprets it in the correct way. Jesus is doing what we would call expository preaching here, where he takes a passage, explains it according to the gospel. But, but second, great sermons are, are more than Bible lectures, right? Like great sermons need to get in your business in some way. They, they need to apply to your life. You need to walk away transformed in some way. And listen, Jesus perfectly cut to the heart of the, of the lives of his disciples. But, but also great preaching and great sermons, they need to be engaging. They need to be filled with life. They can't be boring. When we have young guys preach as they're about to walk up, I always whisper in their ear to kind of rattle them and I say, don't be boring. And, and listen, great preaching can't be boring, right? And so as you look at, at this sermon, like Jesus perfectly crafted his words in these images to the degree that even unbelievers who, who rarely read the Bible, they can remember something like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. This is an engaging sermon. But, but more specifically, Jesus' sermon is to his disciples about discipleship. In other words, this is what he wants his followers to know on what it means to follow him. So if you want to follow Jesus, this is kind of your instruction guide here in the Sermon on the Mount. But, but his message is, is that he wants us to live counterculturally as citizens of the kingdom that is to come. The, the kingdom that is to come is not fully here But we're to live as if it's fully here. We're not supposed to live according to the rules or the ways of this world. We're to live according to the rules and the ways of that world, which means we're going to be different. So this is a call to be different. Now, we've said that when I think of being different, I think of being like separated from the world, like like stepping away from the world. But Jesus actually means something the opposite. If you remember, he uses these images of being salt and light. 
And what he's getting at is that, that we need to permeate the world. We need to be in the world and not of the world. We need to be salt. We need to be this sweet preservative for the world where it's decaying. We need to be uh, light. We need to be this inspiring truth where the world is dark. So we need to be in the world and not of the world. And of course, that raises the question of how do we do it? Well, if we have talked about that Jesus in, in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, if you look up to that section, he gave us what we've called the Jesus principle. In 5.17, he said that he came to fulfill the law. Now, guys, this is an utterly important statement that Jesus makes here, that he came to fulfill the law. And what he was getting at there is not that he was rejecting or diminishing the law in any way. In fact, he goes so far to say that every jot and tittle, every little smallest part of every even letter of a, of a word, that's going to be fulfilled. And what he was getting at is, is he's not rejecting the Old Testament. He's not diminishing the value of the Old Testament. He's not in contradiction to the Old Testament. So we talked about how there's red-letter Christians, people who only accept what Jesus says. And you need to hear clearly from me and from Jesus that Jesus would not be a red-letter Christian. Jesus would totally reject that interpretation of the Bible because Jesus accepted the entirety of the Old Testament. However, he didn't leave it unchanged. The word he uses here is that he fulfilled it. He took it to its intended end. And so Jesus interpreted even the smallest component parts of God's Word through a lens of the Gospel. And then by doing that, He raises the standard of faithfulness. And then He cuts to the heart. So Jesus says in the previous passage, not only are you not to murder, but you're also not to be angry. Not only are you not just to not commit adultery, but you're also not to lust. In other words, Jesus is calling disciples to do the heart work. And that's where we are today. He's calling us to do heart work. And in two specific areas, the first one being Jesus give our disciples give mercy instead of justice. Look with me at verses 38 to 42. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So once again, Jesus is, is leaning into the Scripture. You've heard it said. And then he quotes a Scripture. So Jesus doesn't run away from Scripture. He, he doesn't you know, try to diminish Scripture. He's building everything that He says on top of Scripture. He's using Scripture to make these principles. So if, you're a, uh, if you aren't uh, into the Bible, then you aren't really into following Jesus. Jesus was into the Bible. This ethic that He's teaching, this, this vision that He casts for discipleship is all built upon Bible. But the way he interprets it is once again according to this Jesus principle. Matthew 5, 17, he fulfills the law. So he takes this command and he takes it to its uh, intended end. R really what he's doing here is he's intensifying it and he's internalizing it. So in many ways, he's raising the standard, but he's raising the standard specifically by taking it to the heart. So the motivations of the heart are, are what are ultimately important to Jesus. He knows that your behaviors will follow your heart. So to be a disciple means that you can't just be a disciple with your head or your hands. You have to be a disciple with your heart, the motivations of your heart. And specifically, he references here an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, he's citing a few different passages here from Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 19, Leviticus 24. 
And even that idea is found in even other ancient Near East ethical codes like the Code of Hammurabi. And the idea is proportionate retribution. Jesus is talking about proportionate retribution. Now, the problem is, is this has devolved into kind of a tit-for-tat scenario where people are using proportionate retribution in kind of this tit-for-tat way. And so he's speaking to the problem. But before we get to the problem, we need to really understand the virtues of proportionate retribution. Because remember, what, the, what he references here, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, that's Bible. And remember, Jesus is, is not denying any of that. So, he, so he's not saying something different than eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. So the virtue of personal, or a proportional retribution should sort of be obvious, right? Like, think of a scenario where what if somebody runs over someone's mailbox, destroys the mailbox? Well, well what's justice in that scenario? Like the victim of the great mailbox crime of the year. Like, what if that guy used all of his political power and wealth, and he manipulated justice system so that, so that the justice system then uh, uh, killed that person and gave them like life imprisonment and, and then uh, killed them for, for running over his mailbox. That, that would be ridiculous, right? Like that would be unfair. That wouldn't be proportional to the crime. Or what if that guy like rounded up all his buddies and we did like vigilante justice, and they all got together and they burned down the man's house. Like like again, that wouldn't be proportional. That wouldn't be fair. So when you read the Old Testament, many times we see all these laws as God is somehow harsh. But in reality, proportional retribution is very, very gracious, right? Like it's protecting the vulnerable. It's, It's protecting those who don't have power and don't have wealth from those who would use the law in some sort of vindictive way. So eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, there's a grace in that. God's saying that, listen, if someone took your eye, even though you're more powerful than them, you can't go kill them. It's proportional. Uh, the, the punishment should be proportional. But the problem is what God meant for uh, as a gracious uh, rule for us, humanity then corrupted. It, it, had, it had kind of devolved into like uh, blood feuds and these tit-for-tat fueled vengeance uh, rather than fairness. What God had meant for justice, humanity had perverted into injustice. But Jesus' point here with all this is he kind of cuts through the noise of all of that. And what he does is he, focus, he tells his disciples to not focus on justice, but to focus on mercy. So in the middle of all this back and forth of how we should respond, he calls his disciples to focus on mercy, not focus on justice. Now let's be clear, disciples should focus on justice, okay? But like when we see injustice, we, we should speak into that. But really our focus should be on mercy. Therefore, Jesus is saying disciples should focus on giving mercy when they could give justice. Now, the first example that he gives is somebody slapping somebody in the face. Now, if you think there's some sort of uh, ancient Near East interpretation that's different in ours, you're mistaken. The, 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 the same thing, of, uh, the, the same point uh, that happened back then is what would happen today. If somebody slaps somebody in the face, it's about, it be, it's about an insult, right? Like it's physical and it's violence and you, you shouldn't do it. And that's an aspect of it. But really it's about, uh, it's about insulting the other person. So, so Jesus is getting to a prideful heart. So when someone gives us insults, we should in turn give them mercy instead. When someone insults you, you have grounds to give them justice, but really what you're supposed to do is to give them mercy. And, and there's a number of reasons why it would be foolish to interpret this as, okay, Jesus is saying it's okay to slap somebody in the face. Of course, he's not saying that. 
What he's saying here is that when someone insults you, give them mercy in return. But, but then he expounds on that idea in three ways. If you look at that passage, he gives us three ways after the slapping somebody in, fa- in the face scenario. He talks about giving someone a cloak instead of just a tunic. Then he talks about going two miles instead of one. And then he talks about giving to uh, a beggar or to a borrower. Now, as you look at all three of those scenarios, there's kind of an asterisk here that Jesus talks about where he sets up these scenarios where this is forced taking, okay? So someone takes your cloak. So this is, so these are forced things that happen to people. And, and that's important because what Jesus is getting at is, is, that, is that as disciples, there's times where we need to set aside our rights in order to give someone mercy. Now, I, I want to qualify that for a second. What Jesus is not saying is, is that we don't have rights. He's not denying rights or that, we should, or, or that we shouldn't have them. He's just saying that disciples should, should give people mercy instead of justice, which means at times we set aside our rights. However, I believe his main point is to give mercy, which means to give people things that are tangible and costly. In other words, followers of Jesus, we're not to be focused on just the letter of the law. We're supposed to be focused on the condition of the heart. We're supposed to give mercy in tangible ways. We're supposed to give mercy in ways that it costs us something. Now, these are verses, I think, obviously bring up the topic of boundaries. And I'll put my cards on the table. I kind of bristle at the idea of boundaries. Because I think many times people have used the idea of boundaries really to, as a way to kind of justify not sacrificially loving somebody. But, but we have to be careful even with that comment because you might be the one slapping somebody in the face. And further, you might be the one who has given away all your coats and now a snowstorm is coming. So disciples certainly need to give mercy. However, I think we need to chase an idea here that disciples need to give mercy in healthy ways. So first, Obviously, Matthew 5, if this were enforced on like all of society, like the law of the land, like, like this would obviously, right, lead to like catastrophic social breakdown. Like if the government came through and like gave everybody the freedom just to slap everybody in the face, or if the government just came by and slapped you in the face, is that what it's advocating? Of course not. It's also not advocating for the government to come through and just take everybody's coats or force everybody uh, to give all their money away. Not only would that lead to social decay or, or social breakdown, but it would lead to soul decay. Like that would do something very, very dark in people's hearts. And listen, I, I think people have tried to use this as an, as an economic system in ways that are totally unhelpful. In fact, every time you know, in the history of the world where we've seen that the government has the license to take everybody's uh, uh, property and, and that people don't have rights, friends, that gets to tyranny really fast. A lot of people start dying really quickly, and that's not what this is talking about. Jesus is, is ultimately talking about interpersonal interactions. But, but second, as you look at this, obviously, Matthew 5, it needs to be paired with a lot of wisdom, Right? Like, think about it. If someone is going around slapping someone, but yet there's no discipline with it, uh, they're not going to stop slapping, are they? Like, parents, let me just say it. If you've got a preschooler running around slapping everybody in the face, you better discipline them, right? Because where's that going to go? Like, they're going to land in jail at some point, okay? Like, like, discipline in that scenario is good. This is not saying, oh, that's cute, just let him go on slapping everybody in the face. Further, um, if, if someone just keeps taking other people's coats, 
Like, listen, if that's the scenario, then their thinking and their souls, they're not going to mature in, in, in healthy ways, right? They're, they're never going to be able to, to provide for themselves, to provide a coat for themselves or, or to provide a coat for others. So disciples don't need to be enablers of takers and abusers. Do, do you see that? That's not what this is talking about. Disciples don't need to be enablers of takers and abusers. But let's be honest about a couple of things. We all have unhealthy people in our lives. And unhealthy people do unhealthy things that make other people unhealthy. Therefore, as you read this passage, and as maybe you're thinking of scenarios in your life, fight shame when you can't do all that someone wants you to do. You might have unhealthy people, takers in your life that want you to do things that you can't do. Sometimes you can't go the second mile with them. And I want you to fight shame if that's your scenario. And again, we all have unhealthy people in our lives and unhealthy people are takers. Therefore, be at peace with what you can give them and what you can't give them. Are you with me? Like, like maybe you can't give them all that they're asking for, but be at peace about what you can give them. However, even though we need to avoid these ditches, there, there is still the main point that this is meant to be convicting. This is meant to be this, this spiritual check engine light, this heart check to where we're to ask ourselves, listen, are, are, we, uh, are we returning mercy when people are taking from us? Listen, avoid the shame of doing what you can't do. Disciples aren't enablers. And also be at peace with what you can and cannot give. But disciples focus on giving mercy and not justice. But always remember that Jesus is calling you to be a this, uh, follower of Jesus and not Jesus himself. Can I give you a few tips on maybe how to do this? Number one, on how to do this in healthy ways. Number one, check your heart. Jesus is always cutting to the heart. Are, are you giving justice when, when you could be giving mercy? Number two, honestly ask, what would Jesus give? But like process through how you think Jesus would be helping in this particular situation. N- number three, focus on trying to give mercy in tangible, healthy ways. You probably have more time than what you think. You, you probably don't really need those new boots. You can always go make more money, okay? Number four, reject shame over what you can't do and be at peace with what you can do. Remember, you're a disciple of Jesus and not Jesus himself. When I was a kid, my dad was a, a deacon and a Sunday school teacher in our church. And, and as a deacon, uh, he had this list of widowed ladies in his church, in the church. And so uh, he would do different things for them, uh, bring them things at Thanksgiving, at Christmas. And so uh, he would bring my brother and I, and we would just go visit with these ladies and give them these gifts, pray for them. It was really transformative. And in his Sunday school class, uh, one, one time he had a homeless man begin attending the church, attending um, his Sunday school class, and, and there were uh, physical needs that the man had. And so my dad decided at one point that he was going to pay for two weeks for this guy to stay at a local motel. And every time I drive by that motel, I, I think of this man and think of my dad. And so uh, my dad uh, took me with him, w- with this man, and we got him all set up in the hotel. We got his things moved over there. We spent some time with him. We encouraged him. We, we prayed for him. And, and this man had a, had a box with him. And, and in this box were all these uh, framed pictures, you know, like a picture you would hang in your office. And here after all this time, my dad had, had paid for two weeks in this motel for him. Right before we left, it kind of got awkward. 
the, the man started saying, hey, you know, I think uh, some of these pictures would really go great in your office. Do you want to buy some of these pictures? And listen, I put my cards on the table. I started getting mad. Like here, my dad had done all this stuff for him. He paid for two weeks in a hotel, spent time with him, had really helped him out. And then here at the end, he, he's kind of hustling him with these pictures. Like, where did these pictures even come from? And I looked at these pictures and I thought, who would want these pictures? When my dad stopped, he kind of rifled through the box. He goes, you know, yeah, I think these couple would, would look good in my office. And he paid the man and, and we left with these pictures under his arm. And I, as we got in the car, I asked dad, okay, hey, you really going to put those pictures in your office? And he goes, no, I just wanted to preserve his dignity and I wanted to help him out a little bit. And I felt great conviction because I was quick to want to give that man justice, but my dad was quick to want to give him mercy. The second thing I want you to see is disciples give love to the unlovely. Look at verses 43 to 48. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus, once again, kind of begins in this typical pattern of, you've heard it said, but I say to you. There's one unique thing here is that when Jesus says, you've heard it said, he's not quoting Scripture. So all the other examples of this, he's quoting Scripture, but I just want to be abundantly clear in case you're wondering, the Bible does not say hate your enemies, okay? If you look at that Bible verse, it ain't there, Okay. God does not say, go hate your enemies, okay? But what, G- what Jesus is doing here is he's getting at like a common saying. And if it's not just a common saying, it's certainly a functional belief, right? Like we walk around functionally thinking it's okay to hate our enemies. Like when someone treats us bad at the office, it's okay to hate them, right? Like we functionally believe that. But Jesus, as he's done throughout his sermon, He raises the standard by cutting to the heart. So his clear point was that if disciples only loved their neighbors and they didn't love their enemies, then they would just be like everyone else. That's what everyone does. Everyone does that. Like like if you you think you're doing something great by loving the people that love you perfectly and you really like, like that's what everyone does. That's what the tax collectors do. That's what the Gentiles do. That everyone does that. But, but remember, the context of this sermon is he's calling you to be different. He's calling you to be a citizen of a kingdom that is to come. He's calling you to be beautifully distinct. He's calling you to be different. But how do we love the unlovely different than the world? Again, verse 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The, the way you do this is you love and pray. So when someone is your enemy, someone who is hard to love, you're called to love them and to pray for them. So if someone's mistreating you, especially like if they're abusing you in some way, like you need to get out of that situation. But but you also need to process through, okay, how do I love them and how do I pray for them? Like, listen, one of the, the most healthy things to do when someone's mistreating you is to is to forgive them. That's a great way to love them. And also, 
you know, one way you can pray for those who persecute you is that God would give you the strength to be faithful, to be gracious to them, and that through that, that God would soften their heart and they would come to saving faith in life. Is that how you treat those who mistreat you? What do you give to those people that are hard to love? Who in your life right now is hard for you to love these days? Is there someone who's treating you unfairly? If they are, how, how can you love them even though they don't deserve it? And further, if there's someone treating you poorly because of your faith, how can you pray for them even though they don't deserve it? Notice Jesus' reasoning behind all of this. Again, his reasoning behind all of this is that disciples are different. We're to be different. We're to be distinct. We're to be salt and light. We're to be beautifully weird. You're a child of God. He's calling you to be weird. And the weird ones are rewarded. Do you see that? Listen, if you just love the people who like you back, there's no reward for that. There's nothing glorious that awaits you. That's what everybody does. But if you're weird, if you love the people who are hard to love, he says there's an award, a reward that awaits. But what does it mean to love your enemies? I think this is a key question, obviously, today, because a growing majority of people in our society, they believe that if someone does not fully accept another person's belief about who they think they are, then that's unloving and hateful. Obviously and clearly, the Bible teaches something different, right? Like, disagreeing with someone is not unloving. Right, parents? And further, correcting someone with truth is also not unloving. Right, parents? You have young children, and they are believing something false and doing something destructive. It's actually the loving thing to step in and persuade them to something else. So we can love people and disagree with them and not accept their choices and not accept uh, the beliefs that they're holding on to and still love them. But, but how do we do that? What does it mean to love someone who is hard to love? Can, can I give you maybe some tips on that? Number one, I think it begins by examining your own heart. Like, is there hate in your heart towards somebody that God's calling you to love? Second, it means committing to winning the relationship, not just the argument. Like, like that person that's mistreating you. How can you win the relationship and not just the argument? Fourth, uh, or third, it means uh, finding ways to build bridges and then serve them in tangible ways. Those people that are hard to love in your life, can you, are you serving them in tangible ways? And then I think fourth, clearly Jesus is saying that we're to pray for them. When I was in high school, I, I knew a, a girl who was great at loving the unlovely. She was a, a genuine Christian. She walked with the Lord, uh, which included really being great at loving other people. And so she, she just loved everyone, and as a result, everyone really liked her. But, but she was overt about her faith. She, she was a clear Christian, and so a lot of the young Christians, uh, they teased her a lot. And so she was always getting teased for her faith, even if she was open about it, but, but they liked her, and, and she took it well, to be honest with you. Like she knew that uh, it really wasn't personal, and she would kind of respond to things in thoughtful ways. She would try to give an answer for the hope that she had in the gospel. She was fun. She was kind. She was, she was loving. She didn't take herself too seriously. And, and really, she was mature enough to understand what was going on. They were teasing her because they liked her. They were teasing of her because of her faith in Christ, so she didn't take it too personally. And she was kind when they weren't. I also saw her pray for those kids who would tease her. 
And what was neat that as years went by, those people who used to tease her, many of them would come back to her when the Lord was doing something in their life. Like when the Lord was stirring and they had questions about the gospel, questions about eternity. They, they knew that this girl, uh, they knew that she was a genuine believer and they knew that she loved her. And so over the years, many of them came back to her and, and asked her gospel questions. She knew how to love those who were hard to love. I'm someone who is hard to love, so I chose to marry her. That's my little Mother's Day slip in there. You saw what I was doing. I've got the mic here. I can do that sort of thing. Well, Jesus ends here in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a terrible way to end this thing. What in the world does that mean? I mean, talk about like raising it to this impossible height that none of us are going to gain, right? Be perfect as I am perfect. What in the world does he mean by that? Now, one of the things that he means by that is, is he's not calling you just to be a convert, but to be a disciple. Do you hear that? I accepted Jesus at camp. I'm good. If you're in that crowd and that's, that's all that it is to you, understand that Jesus is calling you to something more. He's not calling you just to be a convert. He's calling you to be a disciple. But what does it mean to be perfect? I mean, anybody else high-centered on perfect? Now, now listen, Jesus' perfection, it, it's connected to his divinity, right? Jesus is God. Therefore, like, like if you think of, of all these uh, glorious examples from the life of Christ, like, like you know that as you look to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did that. Like Jesus perfectly lived that. Like when he was being murdered, what did he do? Cuss them out? You know, fly away? No, Jesus forgave them. Like, like when, when Peter betrayed him, what did Jesus do? He ultimately restored him, John 20. But we aren't God. So what does it mean to be like Jesus? You're still in Matthew 5, but, but look up in your Bible to Matthew 4. At the beginning of Matthew 4 is this story about Jesus going off into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But, but look at that very first verse there. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness by the devil. Do you see that? L listen, we're not going to be God like Jesus, okay? But we can be led by the Spirit in the same way that Jesus was. Do you see that? So, so really the question here is when Jesus says, Go be perfect like I am perfect. He's not telling you to be God. That, that's not attainable. But what he is saying is live the way he lived. In other words, be led by the Spirit. Now, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is the most important passage on what it means to be led by the Spirit. So if you have your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 8. And I want us to look at verses 1 to 8. This is the passage that teaches us how to be led by the Spirit. So if you would be perfect as, as, or, or righteous as Jesus is righteous, then you need to be led by the Spirit. Romans 8, 1 to 8 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of His sinful flesh and and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now catch this. For, the, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, 
they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Take your mind back to the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes. This this guide on how to experience the blessed, happy life. Like you can experience happiness if you yield yourself to the Spirit by setting your thoughts on the Beatitudes. Does that make sense? Like, like go down in Jesus' sermon to salt and light. Like you can be the salt and light if you're led by the Spirit and, and you ask Him to set your, your mental energies on how you can be this sweet preservative force in society, how you can shed light into the darkness of those around you. If your thought life is on understanding the glories of Jesus, then you can live this beautifully countercultural life. Like if you yield yourself to the Spirit, then you can do that heart work that makes you less angry and, and more pure and more true. If you're led by the Spirit, you can give mercy when you could give justice. If you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you can love those who are hard to love. That's how we do it. Again, Jesus didn't die just for you to just be converted and be done. He died for you to be a disciple. He atoned for your sins so that you would follow him the rest of your life. He died on the cross, leaving you this gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that you can have this blessed, happy life. The gospel is that Jesus died giving us the Spirit so that now we can live this countercultural life for the kingdom that is to come. That's what he's calling you to. This week I read what I think is a pretty cool story about a, a disciple who was great at loving the unlovely. And he did it based upon the gospel. This, this good news that Jesus gives us mercy and love when he doesn't have to. Dan is a, is a prison chaplain. In fact, he, he's just given his adult life to this. He spent 35 years working in jails and prisons all over the country. Uh, and, and these are with people who are, who are the most difficult to love in our society. These are very unlovely people. And, and his, his article, he writes that regularly he hears things like, just lock them up and throw away the key. He hears things like, you know, they're, they're just a menace to society. Who cares about them? Well, Jesus does and Dan does too. Dan tells this story about a man who one day came into his office in the prison and he had this piece of paper that was all folded up. And the man said, I, I'm 32 years old. I, I've, I've never had a job in my life. All I've ever done is be a drug dealer. And he said, on this folded up piece of paper, I've just listed all my horrible sins that I can think of, all these horrible things that I've done to people. And listen, if you were a victim of one of those things, you would think this man is very hard to love. This is a very unlovely man. And then the prisoner said, I don't think even God could forgive me of what's on this paper. The chaplain then shared the gospel with him, and he went to Romans 5, 6, and Romans 5, 6 says, Christ died for the ungodly. God died for the ungodly. He died to turn and redeem an ungodly prisoner and make him into a disciple. Jesus gave mercy when he could have given justice. He gave love to the unlovely. He died for the ungodly. Dan then said, He trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. 
And then I had him put his, put his hand on that paper with all those sins that were carefully listed. And then I put my hand on top of his hand and we gave all of it to Jesus and thanked him for his precious and total forgiveness. Then I took the paper, tore it to shreds right in front of him and said, you, my dear brother, are now free. Listen, you and I took from Jesus, right? You and I were the, were the unlovely, the hard to love here. Jesus gave us mercy and love when we didn't deserve it. That's what Jesus gave to us. What would Jesus give? Disciple, do the heart work, the, the inner heart work of giving what Jesus would give. Give them mercy and give them love. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we, in our flesh, we, we really hate this passage. But Lord, we love this passage because we need it. And we know that when we live there, when we believe that to the degree that we live it, we know that joy is found there, blessing is found there, happiness is found there. So may we be a people that when we could give justice, we give mercy. Those people that are hard to love in our life, Lord, we, I pray that we would love them anyway. Lord, we thank you for the Spirit who enables us to do it. We not only thank you for the teaching, but the enablement to do it. Lord, may we be a, a people who are truly disciples, not just converts, but people who truly walk with you, giving mercy and love to those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.